House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back to the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren, and uh, I have a special guest co-host. It's uh, Kevin Thompson from The Buzz on Z Talk Radio. Uh, hey, Kev, how you doing? Hey, I am doing great, Al. Thanks for having me aboard. Oh, it's always good to have you. Do you remember the Martha Moxie murders? You know, uh, yes, and in, in, in fact, I do. It's been a long time ago, but I hear here recently it's in it's hot news. Well, Martha Moxley was 15 and was bludgeoned to death uh, with a golf club in the affluent Greenwich, Connecticut neighborhood. Now, no one was charged with her murder until 2002, when Michael Skakel, who was Moxley's neighbor, who was also 15 at the time of the murder, was tried and convicted of the crime. And joining us today will be Robert F. Kennedy, Jr., who is the cousin of Michael Skakel, who says he was framed for the murder of Martha Moxley. Robert was named one of Time Magazine's Heroes of the Planet and uh, was an assistant district attorney in New York City. And it's our pleasure to welcome Robert to the House of Mystery. Thank you for joining us on the show. I'm glad to be here. What made you decide to write the book about this? Well, my cousin, Michael Skakel, was 15 years old when the murder was committed in 1975, 27 years later. He was never a suspect for 25 years. 27 years later, he was convicted of the crime with no physical evidence based upon the perjured testimony of two supposed confession witnesses. He then served 11 and a half years in prison, and he was released three years ago after a habeas corpus petition based upon the fact that he had ineffective counsel. His, mm -hmm. his lawyer, who actually went to jail immediately after Michael went to jail, for taking the money that he was supposed to spend in the trial and spending it on personal accounts and not paying tax. Michael really never got a defense. And, um, but this cloud has been hanging over him and his family for many years. And during the course of my investigation, I've not only uncovered this evidence that the uh, confessions were perjured, but, and that the, that the corrupt police officer was obsessed with convicting Michael Skakel and committed many other crimes in order to convict him. And I also found the identity of the true murderers. And I was able to track them down and to interview. And those interviews were in this book. Well, that's amazing. Uh, can you say who you figured the uh, murderer was? There were two murderers. One is named Adolf Hasbrook, and he lives in Bridgeport, Connecticut. The other's name is Burton Kinsley, and he lives in Portland, Oregon. What, what was it that uh, gave them away? How is it that you found them? Oh, uh, immediately after Michael, Michael's conviction shocked his family. It shocked me, and I went, because I knew that he was innocent. I wrote an article about his conviction that showed that he could not possibly have committed the crime. He was 11 miles away with six eyewitnesses at the place he was and eight more witnesses who saw him left, saw leave, saw him return. I wrote this article for the Atlantic Monthly, which was an award-winning article. Soon after that, I received a letter from a classmate of Michael Skakel's, who I had never heard of before, in Crawford Mills, in 
he told me in this letter, he said the jury got it wrong. And he revealed that another classmate, a man named Tony Bryant, who had been a classmate of Michael's and Crawford for two years, had been present the night of the murder with the murderers and knew that the scapegoats, none of the scapegoats had been involved in the crime and knew the people who committed it. I was able then to track down Tony Bryant in Florida. Tony Bryant is a first cousin of NBA Lakers star Kobe Bryant. And his brother, Tony Bryant, brother, plays for the Mavericks. He comes from a very prominent African-American. His mother is a Oscar-winning film producer. And he went to school with Michael for two years. And then he moved back with his mother in New York City and went to a public school. And while he was in the public school, he met two city boys who he befriended. These were large kids. They were a year older than their classmate. He knew them only as Adolf and Burr. They were six foot three and six foot four, respectively, 250 pounds, and very strong ass. They were capable of committing this murder, which, which had a, a, a savagery. And Michael would not have been capable of. He only weighed, he was 120 pounds at that time. He was a shrimp. He had 28 inch weight. Hey, Tony took the two boys to Greenwich on six occasions. And during those occasions, they saw Martha Moxley, who was the victim of the murder eventually. And Adolf developed an obsession with her. And he talked about her constantly. They returned from Mischief Night, which was the night before Halloween. And on the train on the way up from the city, they planned the assault. He said that they were going to go caveman on a Greenwich girl, and according to Tony, dragging her into the bushes, striking her with the club, and then sexually assaulting. The following Monday, oh, Tony, they, they, the three boys went onto the Skakel property and picked up golf clubs that were lying there. And they, they said to each other, now we have our caveman club. Tony got nervous because he knew that they were going to get do something very dangerous. And he left 20 minutes before the murder. That was Friday. On Monday, the boys saw him again and confessed that they had murdered, that they had committed the murder. Tony also spoke with a young kid named Jeffrey Byrne, whose house the two men stayed in the night of the murder and cleaned the blood off their clothes and their bodies. And Jeffrey Byrne, who was traumatized by the incident and subsequently died in a mysterious death, was complained constantly to Tony about what had happened as a result of Tony's actions. Tony's mother told him she was very aware of the racial landscape at that time. Greenwich had a notoriously racist police department. And she said, you brought these two boys up there. He told her that they had murdered Martha. She said, you brought these two boys up there. You are black. If you come forward with this, you are going to be implicated and they spend the rest of your life in jail. You can never talk about this murder again. And you have to separate yourself from Adolf and Burr. He did that. And he went away to school. His mother immediately sent him away to school in Texas. I finally reached him. And when I got a hold of him, he said to me, I said, I'm Robert F. Kennedy Jr. I am a cousin of Michael Skagel, and I want to talk to you about the Moxley murder. And there was a long pause on the other end of the line, and then he said, I've been waiting 27 years for this telephone. And it was that call and six subsequent calls. 
he's holding me and takes conversation. Exactly what had happened in the entire story. I then was able to, he only knew Adolf and Burr by their fruit, by their nickname. I was able to obtain a yearbook from Charles Evans Hughes High School and determine that Adolf was Adolf Hasbrook, that Burr was Burr and I was able to track those two men down and have conversations with them. Which they admitted that they had been in Greenwich that night, and they admitted that they had been in the home of Jeffrey Byrne, the, the boy who helped them clean off after the murder. And they described with the intricate details the interior of that home. I then tracked down mountains of other corroborative evidence, including the fact that on Martha's body were found two hairs that nobody was ever, ever able to explain. One of them was described as a Negroid. And the other was described as Asian-like. And Adolf is African-American. Burr is Caucasian with, and, and is described as either part Asian or part American. There was no hairs or any other evidence found that resembled anything to do with connected Michael to the crime. There was lots and lots of other evidence that corroborates Tommy's story of what really happened that time. So are you confident that... Um Michael will receive a new trial, or no? I'm not. There's a, you know, the there. You have a lot of entrenched interest, and Al can tell you that once the law enforcement system has a conviction by a jury, they're very, very reluctant. Prosecutors are very reluctant to uh, admit they're wrong or to let go of the convicted person. So that the state has appealed the decision by the judge that released Michael. If they, if, and that decision is now between the, before a six-judge panel of the Connecticut Supreme Court, if those judges deny the lower court decision, Michael will go back to prison and serve his 25-year life sentence to serve out the sentence. If they uphold the lower court, then the state of Connecticut has to make a decision about whether they're going to re-prosecute Michael or whether they will prosecute for the first time the real killers by the box. Now, why, um, in, in the face of all of this, Robert, why would they be hesitant? I mean, you just presented, I mean, wow. I mean, this is a revelation to us because before we came on the air, Al and I were discussing this case at length, and we thought we had it, you know, kind of tied up with, uh, with Littleton. But this is a revelation. Uh, you know, the, the, the truth is that almost nothing the public heard about this crime was true. And there were, there's a lot about what happened that nobody knew about it, that I didn't know about, that I didn't even suspect. He, um, the way, for example, that Michael was framed, the framing was really orchestrated by the police, by the disgraced New York or L.A. police, former L.A. police detective Mark Furman, who played this pivotal role in the O.J. acquittal. Uh, he then came to Greenwich and played a pivotal role in the conviction of an innocent. He, uh, he was working surreptitiously with a man named Tom Sheridan, whose name has never been mentioned before in connection to this crime, but Sheridan was an in-house paper lawyer and advisor whose entire career had been spent inside the Skakel family. Uh, he was secretly nursing a seething resentment toward the Skakels. And he was feeding false information about the Skakels 
to their enemies, to uh, to Frank, Detective Frank Gar, who was the crooked police officer, and to other people who were opposed to the escape lynch. And I show all that for the first time in this book. How this, uh, how the the conspiracy to frame Michael was was orchestrated and carried out. Robert. It- now, this evidence, um, I know this is probably going to sound like a stupid question, but have you presented this uh, to the attorneys and to the police? Crawford Mills, who brought the evidence to me, at first brought it to Detective Gar and to the prosecutor. But since it did not indicate Michael Skago and since it exculpated him, they ignored it. He then went to Michael's attorney, Nikki Sherman, who essentially did nothing to defend Michael and never investigated it and never told Michael about it. So they had reason to know and had the same lead that I was able to exploit to determine who really killed Martha, but they didn't want to know that, as I show in the book. They weren't interested in any evidence that put anybody on the gibbet except for Michael's statement. That That is a shame. Because you know, I I, um, I work in law enforcement, and and thinking, uh, you know, you know, thinking as an investigator or or as an officer, I would be definitely interested in in this type of information. Of safety. course, you would. And, you know, I work in law enforcement myself. I was a prosecutor, and you know, most prosecutors are honest, and they do what they're supposed to do. With what they're legal to be required to do, which is that not to put somebody in jail, but to see that justice is done. That's the unique duty of a prosecutor in this country. Other right. countries, the mandatory prosecution, anybody the police brings to a prosecutor, they must prosecute. But in this country, the prosecutor is, is supposed to stand as a, uh, as a baffle against the winds of public passions and prejudice and police enthusiasm. Oh, but that didn't happen in this case. And as you know, prosecutors of all kinds of ways are putting their thumbs on the scale of justice. And it's very easy for a prosecutor to sway a jury, um, particularly in notorious crimes like this one, infamous crimes where there's a public demand for blood or a public demand for justice. And in this case, you had a prosecutor, you had a corrupt police officer who was running the investigation and trial, and you had a prosecutor who had, with, with elastic ethics and huge, over, overweening ambition, who saw this as a career case and who was determined to jail Michael, even though the evidence against him was obviously fabricated. And in the end, he used an audiovisual display that swayed the jury despite the fact that nobody could ever explain how Michael Skagel could have committed this crime when he was 11 miles away, 15 witnesses to his absence that night from anywhere near Belhaven. Correct, because they were dropping a family member off. His brother, Rush Skagel, who attended Dartmouth, had gone to a early... Um, audience test preview in Dartmouth, Massachusetts, or Dartmouth, uh, New Hampshire, of the British football comedy, Monty Python's Flying Circus, which had never been shown in the United States. (laughs) They saw it in a theater, and that night it was being 
played on TV, American TV, for the first time. Barrage picked up two of his brothers and a cousin, and they went to the house of other cousins, the Terrians, to see that show. And that show ran from 10.30 to 11 o'clock, and the, or from 10 to 10.30, and the murder took place at 10. They had left at 9.30, and they were all there. They all saw each other, and there were non-family members there, too, who saw Michael, who was never interviewed by Michael's attorney, a perfect ironclad alibi. And, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons the judge released Michael, is because he said, you know, that the, guy, that the attorney never even spoke to the key alibi with. How do you think that uh, Tommy and Michael um, changed their testimony um, so many times, like their story about what, they, what was happening? Well, Mike, Michael changed his story once, and Tommy changed his story once. And, um, you know, the, one of the things that I show in this book is every single suspect changed their story multiple times, and every single witness. Because you're talking about a crime that was 30 years old, people don't remember what they were doing 30 years ago. Penny Littleton changed his story six times. John Moxley, the, um, you know, Ma, the victim's brother, who was also a suspect, changed his story five times. His alibi uh, was completely different in the end from what it had been in the beginning. Andrea Shakespeare, all of the other witnesses changed their testimony, but Michael and Tommy had very compelling reasons to change their testimony. Tommy said that, Originally testified, he said goodbye to Martha at 9.30. He had, he had gone out and made out with her in the bushes, and they had mutually masturbated. So this was something that no 17-year-old kid would want to share with adults, and he was asked about what he was doing. He, that's the concrete and hardened on that story before Martha, before anybody knew that Martha was murdered. So, you know, he had told that story three times to people who were looking for Martha before her body was found. So that was the story he stuck with until 15 years later when he was no longer scared of his puritanical, authoritarian, and very violent father who was, um, you know, obsessed with sexual sin. Tommy wasn't going to talk about that, and, you know, he and Michael had the same issue. Michael had been masturbating in a tree, and, you know, he was a horny, he just turned 15. He was a horny little kid. That doesn't make him a murderer. But who would talk about that? Even Jay Leno said that most Americans would rather be convicted of murder than to admit to having masturbated in a tree. Yeah. So, you know, nobody, no, no kid would talk about that kind of thoughts then on Ken Littleton and about all of his escapades and him failing the uh, lie detector test and, and the way he talked about it. Uh, Ken Littleton was a much stronger suspect than Michael. He was connected to 20 other serial murders that all involved, almost all involved one girl the same age as one. Uh, 
he failed five separate lie detector tests. He appeared on several occasions but confessed to the crime. He was in and out of prison, in and out of mental institutions. He really undertook a criminal career immediately after the murder. And he had a history of violence towards women. So he was a very, very strong suspect. Uh, and the, the evidence against him was far stronger and very compelling. I think he was everybody's suspect for most of those years. But in order to prosecute, they didn't want him to prosecute. Mark, he was of no use to Mark Furman. Because Mark Furman, in order to sell his books, needed a famous person to be on the gibbet. And Kenny Littleton wasn't. He couldn't have sold one book by saying it was Kenny Littleton. The only way to sell books is to accuse Michael Skakel and then brand Michael Skakel as a Kennedy cousin, which, you know, Michael Skakel was not a Kennedy. I never knew Michael Skakel growing up. No Kennedy knew him. I didn't meet Michael Skakel until 1983, which was eight years after the crime was committed. I never heard of the Mars Moxley None of my brothers and sisters were aware of this, and none of us knew any of the Skakels. My family, as I show in the book, was estranged from the Skakel family. The Skakels were carbon, oil, and coal Republicans who supported Nixon in 1960, Kenneth Keating over my father in the Senate race in 64, and opposed my father's senatorial bid in 1968. And, you know, my mother loved her brothers and sisters, but she she had no contact with them, and we never met any of the Skakel cousins, as I said, until eight years after the murder was committed. Wow. Yeah, that's kind of a surprise. I didn't, re I didn't realize that, because they make it sound like you guys all grew up together and knew each other. Yeah, no, we didn't. Of course, that's what, and that was part of the flypaper of this case that kind of, uh, you know, attracted the, the feckless national media. Nobody looked below those seductive orthodoxies, you know, beyond this kind of thin patina to actually look at the fact this was a, this was a story that in, in journalistic parlance was too good to fact check. Nobody, there were 401 reporters certified to cover this case and only one of them questioned that orthodoxy and said, wait a second, this doesn't make any sense. Now, do you feel like there's going to be some sort of um, issue with um, being that, with minority tensions right now about accusing them too? Well, the, the, the people who I accuse and who committed the crime, one of them is African-American and one is Caucasian. Oh, you know, I... I, you know, I can't be responsible for optics. I, you know, my only choice is to pursue the truth. That's what journalists should be doing. That's what the kind of lawyer that I am does. That's what uh, most of us try to do, which is to, to pursue the truth. Oh, and I really don't see that I have any choice other than to pursue the truth wherever it leads. Now, now that brings up a really good point, Robert. If you don't mind me asking, you know, the... The, the Kennedys were a big name. Well, they, they still are. Do you feel that the police were soft-handed on them because of their, their, 
their power and their authority? I mean, do you think that they actually did the job? Did they do the searches? Did they go in depth enough? Now, as has been shown time and time again, first of all, there was no Kennedy involved in this murder. Well, the Kennedys were unaware of this murder. It wasn't something that anybody in my family ever talked to. I had never heard about it until eight years later. The Skakels, did the Skakels have political power? No, not. Did they, was there a, uh, was there, was a fix in somehow? No. Um, and even the biggest critics, Frank Gar and Len Levitt, have said that that is absolute nonsense, that there was, there was no, um, there was no fix. There was just extraordinary police incompetence. There was 147 people, men on the, Greenwich Police Force, and not one of them had ever been involved in a murder investigation. They didn't have police tape. They lost everything. They lost stuff that would have exculpated the scapegoat kids. They lost the vaginal swabs. They lost the anal swabs. They didn't do proper testing for, uh, for, to, to detect the presence of a sexual assault. They lost all the hairs that were found on Martha's body. They lost a bloody piece, a bloody pair of pants, size 36, which would have fit those boys or Kenny Littleton. Uh, Michael had a 28-inch waist. They lost a bloody pair of size uh, 13 sneakers. Michael had a size 6 foot at that time. So, you know, there was a lot of police incompetence, and it goes on and on and on. It's detailed in the book. Uh, it had nothing to do with anybody fixing the police. They were just, you know, they were just incompetent. So given the... the, the they lost, and I, you know, among other things, they lost the handle to the golf club, which when the police first arrived, they reported that it was protruding from his neck. Uh, afterwards, nobody could explain. I think it appears that somebody just took it as a souvenir. It never ended up in the police locker. Now, both, that, both the doctor, the first doctor on the site, and the police, the two first policemen reported being there, and the camera con- the photographs confirmed that. But, you know, it was lost, and then at the trial, uh, John Benedict, the prosecutor, told the jury that Michael Stagel had taken it, but no evidence of that in order to conceal his mother's name on the handle. He said no other murderer would, would, have, would have had an incentive to take it, ignoring the whole science of fingerprint protection. Of course, anybody would have had the incentive, but he also ignored the evidence that the police that it had been there when Mars's body was found, that the police had lost it. Yeah, that's, a, again, a Robert, that's a revelation to me because it was our understanding that the handle was missing completely from the scene. So you're saying that the police lost all of all of this evidence? Yes. The, the two first police officers on the scene, you know, Detective Hickman or Officer Hickman, both testified then and subsequently that the handle was there when they arrived with it, that the handle was protruding from Martha's neck with a leather grip, quote-unquote. The doctor, first doctor to arrive on the site, said that handle by that time was laying next to Martha's head on the ground, and it was never recovered. The police just lost it. 
Uh, I mean, we have not heard any of this, have we, Al? No, it's it's all, <laughs> out of all the reading and stuff we did. Well, read, read the book, guys, because, you know, I think on almost every page that book, you're going to see things that you haven't seen before, and I don't ask anybody to take my opinion seriously um, about what happened. They, they shouldn't do that. You know, this whole, the big pitfall of this case is nobody has ever looked at the facts. They followed passion and prejudice. Nobody has followed the facts. And if you look at the facts, uh, there's no way that Michael could have committed the crime and the, believe the corruption in the, uh, in Texas Guard's office is, uh, you know, should put him in jail. He, he should be in prison for this, for what he did. And, uh, and then you'll also see the strong evidence which I think is beyond a reasonable doubt. Other people may not think it's that as beyond a reasonable doubt, but I believe it is that these that Adolf and Burr killed her. And when we tried to subpoena Adolf and Burr, they both took the Fifth Amendment. Mm-hmm. I've said you know, publicly that if they, if I'm wrong about Adolf and Burr, they should sue me. If they're innocent, they will. I don't believe that's bad. Do you think they'll ever get prosecuted then for this? I hope so. If they're, you know, Connecticut is supposed to be the Constitution state. These guys should be in jail. If they did it, I agree. But, uh, but Robert, if I may, can, can I challenge you on just a couple of things? Sure. To put this in perspective? Um, let's go back to the handle. Now, what evidence do you have that somebody may have taken it? Do you know that it was there on the scene other than just reports? I don't know because I wasn't there. I just know what the two police officers say to this day. You know, Detective Hickman, who was the first on the scene, as not only was it there, he describes in the police report it being there with its other leather and grip. And he also has said, I went home and I told my wife at night. It, it, it decided that the shooting from his neck disturbed him. And the other detective on site, the first on site, said the same thing. The, the doctor, the first doctor on the site, who declared her dead, said that, that by that time the handle was lying next to her head on the blanket. Ah, I understand. Be- because from, from my research looking at this, this case, the autopsy report said that there were several strikes to her head. I mean, they were very damaging blows. That so much to the point that they couldn't tell which one it was that actually was the cause of death. But obviously, a, a, a golf club handle protruding from the neck would have been the cause of death. Why would they not have said that? They believe the coronary coroner reports all mention the punctures in her throat that were made by a golf club shaft. Mm-hmm. So that is, you know, that's in every corner report. Please, please report. The question is what happened to the piece that the golf club was broken in three pieces? Yes. What happened to the piece, which was the handle part, that made those, you know, that, that made those impalements? And what the police officers who were first on site say, and the doctor, was it was there at the time that they arrived. Yes, sir. And because I'm personally, and, and this is just us us guys talking, personally, I still like Littleton for it because he even made the statement at one point to one, you know, his wife, 
that if they ever find that golf club handle, my prints are going to be on it. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of people are going to have different theories about this case. But what I would uh, ask you to do is to read the book, and then let's talk about it. Because I don't think that it, until you see the facts, I don't think that you know that anybody can make any uh, rational conclusions about this case. It's all guesswork, and that's what it's been up to this time. Yes. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. We really uh, recommend everybody uh, pick up the book. Uh, it's, it's on sale now, isn't it? Yeah, the, uh, the book is on sale, available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or, you know, it should be in your local books. Again, the book is called Framed, Why Michael Skakel Spent Over a Decade in Prison for a Murder He Didn't Commit. The guest and author, Robert F. Kennedy, Jr., Thank you very much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Robert, it's been an honor to speak with you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure, and I'm very grateful for the attention that you've given me. You're actually interested in the facts rather than technology. Thank you. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www houseofmystery.com show is over for now was it as good for you as it was for me yeah good night this has been a production of something weird media I'll be back